You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for the purpose I came baptizing with water, that he may be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would be our vision, that you would be what replaces what we think is true in our hearts, what we think is good, what we think is right, but whether by day or by night, whether waking or sleeping, we pray that your presence, your light, your identity, Jesus, would be our battle shield, our sword for the fight against unbelief. We'd find our dignity in Christ. We'd find our delight in Christ, that you'd be our soul's shelter, that you'd be our high tower, that you would orient us heavenward tonight as we open up your word, as we read it, as we study it, and according to your will, as we believe it and go out from here and live it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I consider myself a bug eater. Raise your hand if you've ever eaten a bug in your life. That's what I'm talking about. Keep it up if it was on purpose. All right, much fewer. Great. That's way more than I thought it would be. Some of you were around when I came back from Guatemala last, maybe two summers ago, and smuggled, that's right, smuggled a whole Rubbermaid full of some popos, uh, fried flying ants, which taste like popcorn, trust me. Um, they ended up on our boy's ch- uh, peach cobbler that the church family was sharing with us that day that I came back, and, and, and it was scandalous. 
all the kids were throwing down some popos, right? Yeah, Owen, Owen was there too. Caleb was there throwing these things down. You probably have all eaten bugs in your life at some point or another. Is there like a statistic that says we all do this while we're sleeping? Our boys are from Uganda, and crickets are the delicacy there. And though Ivan swears he never ate one, we have material evidence that Nico has because we had a book, a picture book, when we were teaching him English. He's three years old, and one of the pages has bugs all over it. And we're working through the bug names, and all of a sudden we get to cricket, and we're quizzing him. We point to cricket. He doesn't know cricket. But you know what he does know? He knows the word food. (laughs) And so he says, food. And we're like, dude, I've never seen you eat one, but I know you have eaten one of these. Perhaps I've lost a bit of credibility in your eyes already to be able to proclaim God's word to you, but that didn't cause people to lose credibility in John the Baptist proclaiming the word to God's people. He was an odd man. He was a bug-eating preacher in our story today that we hear about. I'm going to try to keep the Johns straight tonight by doing this. I'm not going to refer to John, the author of the book of John, much, but when I do, I'll try to call him the evangelist. Hopefully this is helpful because uh, when we say he's the evangelist, he's the one who penned this account of the good news, the, the good newser, the evangelist John. And in a sense, John the Baptist was an evangelist also. He was there to proclaim bad news and good news. Bad news, sin is real and you are in it. Good news, the kingdom of heaven is coming. Turn, right? This is John the Baptist and we'll see more of that today as we explore who John the Baptist was. But I'll call him the Baptist and I'll call the author of the book John. So if I keep referring to the Baptist, I don't mean Nathan. I mean John the Baptist. A little poke there. All right, I hope that's clear. I'm already confused. Um, in order to help us uh, go along and, 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 and outline this text for this evening, I'm going to follow a similar path that we had um, last week. Last week you heard um, who was Jesus, why did Jesus come, and why um, did um, and, and what did he come, and what did he do? Who was he? Why did he come? What did he do? This week, we're going to look at John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? Why did John the Baptist come, and what did John the Baptist do? If you were here last week, Nathan explored the, the first third of the first chapter in John, which we could call the prologue, the, the, the theological treatise on the identity and, and historical um, everlasting historical identification of who Jesus was theologically, the, ever, the, the eternal son of Jesus from before time. And this week, if we've moved from the prologue, this pre-action and pre-dramatic speech, now we're in the beginning of the drama. We start being introduced to the characters, and John is on stage to introduce us to the main character, as we'll see here in our prelude. So who was John the Baptist? Why did John the Baptist come? What did John the Baptist do? First off, the Baptist, he was Jesus' cousin. His mother, Elizabeth, was, I guess is, a relative of Mary, Jesus' mother. We actually don't see that in our text this evening in John, but the other Gospels accounts from Luke 
and Matthew, they help us. They, they help build context of what exactly is happening here in John chapter 1. So we'll lean on those texts a little bit this evening. For example, Luke chapter 1 tells us that the Baptist was the answer to hundreds, if not thousands, of prayers from his parents, Elizabeth, and his father, who was a priest, Zechariah, who was no doubt praying for the people of Israel, who were sitting in silence for 400 years, not having heard a word from God, and wanting to hear a word from God, but also in their barrenness in old age, wanting a child. And God sends his angel Gabriel to bring good news to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. Your prayers have been heard, and we're going to send you a son. You're going to get a son. You're going to bear a child. And that child will be the forerunner to the one child that will save his people. This is what it says in Luke 1. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord, a people that are prepared. So the Baptist, John the Baptist's conception, actually marked a new chapter in God's communication and act to save his people. He's sending his messengers. In this case, like I said, the, the, the angel Gabriel. And this communication to his people, God's people, is about himself. It's, it's re- revelation. He's revealing himself more and more. And it has come again at a time when God's people have not heard from God in over 400 years. Malachi, the last few verses of Malachi, the last prophet and last book of the Old Testament says, behold, I will send you Elijah. You hear this echoing in Luke 1, 400 years later? I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. No wonder, no wonder the Jewish leaders and their delegation of investigators came asking, who is this desert baptizer? No wonder the Christ and the prophet Elijah And even this Moses-like prophet was in the list of possibilities that the Jewish leaders thought that John might be. Something was happening anew, and they wanted to know what was going on. The Jewish people expected, many of them expected Elijah to return, to supersede a divinely appointed rescuing king. Matthew chapter 3 tells us that the Baptist eventually turned into an odd, a radical, a loud Bold, bug-eating, camel-skin-wearing preacher man. And it wasn't all of these things that made him so odd as much as it was what he was saying out loud to the people. What made him odd and what prompted so much attention from the leaders of the Jewish people, especially the religious authorities was that he was crying out from the desert, calling people to repent of their sins because the kingdom of heaven was near. Matthew 3 says this, that John came preaching 
in the wilderness of Judea. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet, prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Verse 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. And Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When was the last time you heard a person, man or woman, standing on the street preaching out loud? Actually, Uganda and Guatemala are the only two places I've seen that. Perhaps in bigger cities, there there are some standing on corners preaching. The end is near or preaching straight out of the Bible. um, Repent and believe and just evangelizing the masses. I'll confess, I don't pay much mind to them. I don't stop and begin asking them, are you, Jesus, come again? Are you a prophet of old? Come. Are you the Christ? My guess is you don't pay much mind to them either. But in our text, it's clear that the Jewish leaders are paying very close attention. He is under very close investigation. Verse 19 in John 1 says, The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? This delegation has come to inquire of his identity. And just in case you're tempted to believe this is an innocent, kind questionnaire he's being asked to fill out about who he is and what he's up to, Matthew 3 sheds more light on the context and the contentious relationship between John the Baptist and these leaders. Verse 7 of Matthew 3 But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brought of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and will be thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff... He will burn it with unquenchable fire. I woke up this morning six miles from the evacuation area in Napa Valley, California. And yesterday I wore a mask to part of a wedding that was outside. And we were 12 or 13 miles from burning, a burning city, essentially. It struck me while we're celebrating this wedding, smiling, laughing, eating, drinking, that just a few miles away, People were moving out of their homes, not knowing if they'd ever return. Even a, one of the gals who made the cake, this, they talked about this in the reception. She ran back into her house before she left and grabbed the decorations for the cake to make sure she had that to serve this couple. And it struck me that the death toll was up to 30 already. The missing and unaccounted for were 200 A lot of people have smartphones now and not a lot of landlines and getting notifications in in time are difficult, especially when a 70 mile an hour wind hits at 2 a.m. What do you do? 
If your family member doesn't call from out of town, you hope you wake up to the wind. Otherwise, you wake up to the heat. People jumping in their neighbor's swimming pools with t-shirts over the water, trying to breathe through, some surviving, some not. I actually sat next to a police officer on the flight today who showed me videos of him driving through neighborhoods where there's nothing left. It's all flat. And yet the fire in some of the areas has been quenched. As dark and as painful and as heart-wrenching as it is to see things and even people perish in flames on this earth, it is, this is but a shadow of what John the Baptist is talking about eternally. He's speaking of an unquenchable fire. And he is promising that those who do not turn from sin and trust in God will end up in it forever. No wonder he's under investigation. And he directed this directly at the spiritual authorities over the Jewish people. So they come, they come investigating. You've heard this term, turn or burn. It's a crude summary of what John the Baptist was saying. And many preachers say it with much too cold of hearts and lack of compassion. But friend, it is no less true because some use it too loosely or perhaps too often. It's straight from the mouth of this radical desert street preacher that anyone who does not turn away from sin and turn toward God in faith will be punished eternally. Friend, please don't take this lightly. Won't, would this affect how you walk out of your house every day? How many times do you just walk out of your house thinking, what am I going to do before I walk back through this door? When's the last time we walked out of our doors thinking most of the people I know are going to perish in an unquenchable fire forever. Christian, don't take this lightly. Don't brush this off. The Pharisees didn't take it lightly. They sent investigators. And most of their hearts, not all of them, not all the Pharisees' hearts were hardened. We'll see in John chapter 3, we got Pharisees looking into this. But most were hardened, and most eventually approved of, even planned out, the death of God's Son. But we're not there yet. Today, we want to know who John is. We want to know more specifically, verse, verse 25 of chapter 1. They want to know, these guys want to know, by what authority is he administering this sign of conversion, this sign of repentance, this new belief called baptism? So John's calling for repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's, under, he's a man under serious investigation. So what, why did he come? If that's who John is so far, why did John come? He's called people to repentance? Yes. We saw already in Matthew 3 that that was one of his first things to do, call people to repentance. In verse 23 of John 1, we hear him say, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In Isaiah's context and time, Israel's in exile or headed into exile, and he's calling for this metaphorical improvement of the pathway that God might come 
down, this road that is hindered by lack of belief and lack of obedience. In other words, Isaiah was calling people to repent, make straight the path, bring the hills down, bring the valleys up. God will come. He will rescue us from exile, from distancing ourselves from him, from the judgment we are living under. And this is what John the Baptist has come to say as well. And it's purely spiritual. Bring down the pride. Turn from sin. Forsake self. Turn toward God. Trust in him. God will rescue people from exile. Israel, the first century, you feel in exile still? Oh yeah, you have your temple. That's great. Yeah, the one where, you know, the Holy Spirit never came into, that one. You've got some land. But do you have eternal security and salvation from God? Are you still cutting animals? Are you still needing daily atonement? There's one in the wilderness calling out, make straight the way of the Lord. Something new is coming. Something that John is anticipating and that we believe in even now. Repentance. What is John calling them to? Repentance. It's, it's, it's what we talked about even now, even, even, in, even in Matt's transition between songs, we, we see who we are, we see who God is, and we believe differently. That's what repentance is about. It's about believing differently. It means coming to a new understanding about God, a new understanding about self and sin. Actually, God, sin, and self. God is, goes from being insignificant, perhaps not even existing, or maybe just existing for anything I would like for him to do for me conveniently, to the one who owns me, the one who I owe everything to, the one who I have not lived up to his standard. Sin goes from being fairly awesome to being absolutely deplorable and condemnation bringing in light of God's perfection and love and ownership over us. And finally, toward self, if we believe God is holy, if we come to realize he is holy and that he owns us and we owe him everything and we realize that we have not given him anything, we've lived all of our lives for our own glory and our selfish gain, then we realize our new attitude to ourself is we're not all that awesome and we need a rescuer. Repentance is about realizing lostness. It's about realizing you need a savior. That's what John is calling people to. Why would he be doing that? Why would he be calling people to realize they need a savior? The answer, because the savior has come. The savior has come. Even the Pharisees, the most elite religious leaders among the Jews, were being called to recognize that though they believed they were right in God's eyes by their own efforts, and ingenuity and man-made additional rules to God's word. John was telling them, if you remain in your sin, you too will perish. As dangerous as it was, John called everyone to repent, to display inward change of heart and posture toward God and sin and self, and to display that outwardly in baptism. That's what he was calling them to do. 
your soul is buried in sin, come and live again. You know you're deserving of death, come show the world that you no longer believe that, that there is new life on its way. The kingdom of heaven is coming. New life is coming. The new life giver himself is coming. Jesus is making a way, or I'm sorry, John is making a path and encouraging people to make a path in their hearts and in their lives for Jesus to come and to rescue them. So we've seen a bit about who John the Baptist was, a bit about what he came to do, and now let's see what he did. John the Baptist came ultimately to introduce Jesus to the world. I'm not going to make you raise your hand this time, but in your heart you can raise your hand. If you were a wrestling fan at any point, I'm not talking about what Declan Sanchez has done in the past for La Cueva, where you actually use real athleticism to um, score points and perhaps even glorify God in the use of the human body in athletic prowess and skill and strength. No, I'm talking about the um, theatrical, flashy, dare I say even trashy, um, professional wrestling sport that I was so in love with in junior high and high school. When I thought, when I, when I was a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, right? Um, but for all the bad things that can be said about professional wrestling, those guys sure knew how to make an entrance. Did they not? My goodness. I mean, I, I feel like the boxing world now is taking this on, and we can talk later about the ethics of uh, image bearer harming sports. But um, point is here— can you imagine the wrestling officials and board of directors and delegation jumping in the ring in the middle of some awesome introduction and saying, excuse me, grab the mic, announcer man, who are you? Are you the main event? Are you the trainer of the main event? Are you the manager of the main event? He grabs the microphone back and says, I'm not the main event. He's the main event. The one coming in is the main event. John 1, 31, John says, John the Baptist says, I came baptizing with water that he, Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. So John seems to understand, John the Baptist seems to understand his own identity as the one calling people to view and behold and cherish the true identity of the one who has come, Jesus. Our, our text here is bookended of this concept of the Baptist giving testimony in verse 19, confessing, not denying who Jesus was in verse 20. And even in our last verse, verse 34, saying, I've seen and I've borne witness. John is saying, the one who has never been seen that we saw last week has now been seen and here he is. He's on the scene. And this isn't the first time John the Baptist recognized Jesus. Even from the womb, his mother walks in the room. And, and, and before even seeing Mary, sorry, Mary walks in the room 
And Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, is already in the room. Mary has gone to visit her relative, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, before even seeing Mary, who is pregnant with this God-man Jesus, says, my son leapt within me. So John the Baptist, even from his mother's womb, is already recognizing who the Messiah was, who the one to come was. Elizabeth tells Mary and calls her, you're the mother of my Lord. John's ministry started at a very young age, drawing attention to the Savior, even such that Elizabeth calls her nephew, Jesus, my Lord, before he even came out of the womb. In our text, John gave testimony as a man to Christ by absolutely humbling himself. Three questions come up from his investigators. Are you the Christ? We don't see that in the text, but they must have asked because it's his first words to the investigators. I am not the Christ. God's people were looking for an anointed king. God's anointed, which is what Christ means. It's not Jesus' last name. They're looking for an anointed king king that would bring God's forever presence, forever blessing to God's people. And most understood that that meant they would rid them of the oppression. It would be a political rescuing, not just a spiritual, but a political rescuing, geopolitical victory over their oppressors. But John would have none of being identified as this one to come, this anointed king. He said, I am not the Christ. Well, are you Elijah then? Malachi spoke of Elijah. We saw that already in Malachi 4. Spoke of Elijah returning in a future day. Luke 1 also alluded to it. This new era of God's grace and revelation and salvation. Are you him? And even though Jesus acknowledges that John the Baptist came in the spirit and in the power of the prophet Elijah, John's not interested in any extra attention here. He diverts this to I am not, he says. Finally, they try to pin on him. Are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy 18, God promises Moses that God will raise up a prophet from among his people, Israel, and he will put his words in the prophet's mouth and he shall speak to them all that God has commanded. In one sense, this is a prophecy all the Old Testament prophets who would come and speak on God's behalf. But more importantly, it seems to be pointing here in Deuteronomy 18 to a final prophet who would not just bring God's word, but would be God's word. And would be God's presence among his people, his ongoing presence among his people. Again, John says, that's not me. This denial, this diverting of attention away from himself. He begins his testimony, his introduction of the Savior by pointing all attention away from himself. Where will this attention land? In verse 29, he moves everyone from beholding him to beholding Jesus. Do you know what the main point of this little section is? The main point of this little section is is that John Baptist is not the point of this section. That's the main point. And that if we think John the Baptist is the main point of this section, we're actually missing the main point. 
In each of these denials, we see that John is directing attention away from himself, redirecting it to Christ. John is not the anointed David-like king who is to come. He is not the Elijah-like, spirit-indwelt, miracle-wielding, working prophet. He is not the the mediating prophet-priest Moses. I'm not them. You're looking for someone. You're looking for someone greater than them. Honestly, they're all dead or not here anymore in Elijah's case who got swept up into heaven. They're not here. But let me show you who is here. Jesus, he's the anointed king. He will be the miracle working prophet. He will be the mediating priest that brings God's forever word, his forever blessing, his forever presence to his people Once and for all. Jesus is the point. He is the main event, people. He is the main event for you. John's telling these leaders, you got the wrong guy. You're barking up the wrong tree. The Baptist, after calling everyone to repent, is now pointing everyone, behold, consider, look into, know, trust, go and investigate, go and discover, follow this one. He's the answer to all of your sinful trouble. And the day after being questioned by the investigators, the Baptist sees Jesus, and here's what he says in verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist says, I'm just a man. Though I was born before this man, He was before I was. Generally, a bond servant would have the status to go and untie a sandal. John doesn't even believe he's worthy of being the bond servant of his cousin, Jesus. He's so high above who John is. John is exalting Christ as much as he can in front of everyone. And what a way to kick off the book of John for us, the evangelist, and telling this story about John the Baptist. We are about to witness and get to know Jesus better, hopefully, than we ever have in the book of John, and John the Baptist and John the evangelist, they're both calling us, behold the Lamb of God. Get ready, Christ Church, in the next 20 or so weeks, to continually behold Christ. In your gospel communities, continually behold Christ. In your own time in his word, continually behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you're not a Christian yet, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the thousandth time, Christian, be transformed by the renewal of your minds as you view the mercy of God, to take away your sins. When, when this idea of the Lamb of God was spoken by John, everyone around knew their Old Testaments well. And everyone would have thought of a few different images. This Lamb of God title would have pointed them directly back to the time in Egypt. Right? Just after our uh, series in Genesis, God's people are multiplying and becoming great. And eventually... In the book of Exodus, they're being oppressed. They've gotten too big. They've gotten too powerful. They're dangerous people. Pharaoh oppresses them, enslaves them, works them hard to the bone. They cry out to their God. Hundreds of years later, he hears them. He goes to rescue them. He sends a prophet, a mediator. It's Moses. In the end, 
ultimately saves them out of slavery by telling them, put your trust in me and show me by cutting a lamb and putting that blood above the post of your house so that when my angel of death comes to take out the firstborn of those who are oppressing you, you and your firstborn will be spared. God's people are spared from God's wrath and from death by the blood of God's lamb. That's the kind of lamb Jesus is. This lamb actually was part of how God saved his people out of Egypt. And Jesus, the lamb, is the way in which God will save his people forever. Even the lamb in Egypt, slain and painted, was a precursor and an arrow pointing us to the ultimate fulfillment in Christ, who would not just free us from uh, geopolitical oppressiveness and injustice, but from the own injustice and oppressiveness of our sin that breaks God's image in us. Jesus is that kind of lamb. Or as we saw earlier in the book of Genesis, there's another lamb that was offered up. Abraham, the beginning of God's people, the beginning of Israel, who's about to sacrifice his son under obedience of God, about to sacrifice Isaac, and God provides a replacement. This substitute lamb so that Abraham's son would not perish. So that ultimately the people of God and the seed promised to Mary would not perish. So that ultimately a new lamb would be born one day, live, die, come back to life, ascend into heaven, send his spirit so that you could be saved, so that I could be saved. God has provided a lamb so that he might fulfill his promises across generations, across history. And John's saying here, I can only dunk your body into physical water as a symbol of what happens spiritually. That's what, but Jesus, he can dunk people's souls into the Holy Spirit. He can, he can convert you. He can save you. He can transform you forever spiritually. He can do what I can't do, John the Baptist says. It's as if John the Baptist is saying, you want to know who you should be investigating? You want to you know who I came to proclaim? You want to know who was and is and forever will be? You want to know who holds your salvation in his hands? Do you want to know who bears the Spirit now and forever and will distribute it to those who repent and follow him? Jesus, that's who. Not me, John says. Not me, I say. Hopefully not you. You say you're trusting in your own ability to be saved. Not you. You can't do these things. Not you, Pharisees, way back when. Not you, Christian, if you're trusting in your rule-keeping. Not any of these things. Not any of these people. Not any of us. Only Christ. Jesus will serve his people. He will give his life. Jesus will die the death he does not deserve. Jesus will come back to life triumphant over death. Jesus will ascend into heaven, prepare a place for us who trust in him. John's saying 
Jesus is more than any of these men you're trying to pin an identity on me with. Unlike Old Testament leaders who the Holy Spirit came to sometimes for special circumstances and for certain reasons that God needed them to lead out supernaturally, Jesus got the Spirit, as we saw, and John says it remained on him. Jesus is utterly different than any of the Old Testament leaders. It remained on him. This is John the Baptist's ministry and his witness of Jesus' baptism is God's full endorsement of Jesus as his perfect son, his sacrificial lamb, and as one who is able to earn God's favor for God's people forever. And folks, here in 2017, this has all already happened. John the Baptist was looking at it in the future. John the Evangelist, as he wrote this, was looking at it in the past. And we look with John the Evangelist back in the past, knowing that Jesus has already done all of this for us. You hear what the bug-eating, desert-dwelling John the Baptist is saying to you? Do you hear what John is calling you to be, to do? Trust in what someone else is. Trust in what someone else has done. Trust in in Jesus. He's here, John says. The promised one is here. The one who can take away sin, bring eternal life. He's here. Are you beholding him? Are you trusting in him? Are you distracted by yourself? Are you, are you bored with Jesus? Are you distracted by religious routine or unreligious routines? Are you missing the point of church? So thankful that Nathan helped us right at the beginning of this evening to remember why we're here. All of that which we believe of the gospel we've rehearsed this evening. Are you bored with it? Are you missing the point of it? Are you missing the point of the whole Bible and how it fits together for your redemption and the redemption of those who are around you who are perishing? Are you missing the point of the Lord's Supper? The elements we'll partake of this evening? Are you missing Jesus? Are you trusting in your cultural Christianity to save you? Are you trusting in your Christian-like character or behavior or at least the amount of it you show to other people on Sunday nights to save you? Are you trusting in your professional or familial identity to justify your existence and purpose? And if that fails, I've blown it. And I have no hope. And I have nothing to talk about and nothing to put my hope in. Friend, divert your attention away from yourself. Let's take a cue from John the Baptist in our text tonight and, and, and push away all temptations to believe that our significance in the kingdom of God is in and of ourselves, but rather it is in Christ himself. Perhaps you're not missing Jesus. Perhaps you've had an encounter with Jesus. We'll see more about what encounters with Jesus look like and what it means to follow him next week as Nathan opens up the rest of this chapter for us. 
Perhaps you've had an encounter with Christ. He's changed your life. Everyone must have an encounter with Jesus. Come to see who he is and to trust in it. But we actually, we, we need to know him, not just know about him, right? We need to know him, not just know about him. And it's not just enough to experience him one time and trust in what happened a long time ago. We must know who he is. We must truly know him. We must truly understand that we're saved by him. Uh, a, a, a seminary professor asked one of his students at Bible college, why do you believe Jesus is called the Lamb of God? And they answered, because he was gentle and he was kind. That's why. Seminary professor realized, sure, he is gentle and kind to his children whom he saves and who he rescues and when you need that he will be that but that's not all he is and that's actually not what the lamb of god is talking about we don't just need to experience some fluffy jesus that makes us feel good inside or worse makes us feel good about ourselves necessarily we need a jesus who gets in the way of God's wrath to protect us from it and who absorbs it all on our behalf and who rises in victory over it and indwells us forever through his spirit. We need the lamb because he is the sacrifice of God, he's the sacrifice for God, and he is the sacrifice to God. Of God. Because nothing in all creation is worthy enough, costly enough, besides the perfect, eternal light and life-bringing Son of God to be sacrificed and to pay an eternal penalty for an eternal crime that millions and billions of us have committed in His eyes. For God, because He Himself is God. And in his holiness, he himself demands perfect atonement for sin and death. To God, because by his blood, we have access to the holy of holies. We can shed off the guilt and shame. We can actually let it go. Even if you sin again, which you will do, the sin, the the guilt and shame should not follow. Only assurance from the gospel should follow if you have come to trust in the Lamb of God. Is that you, friends? You find yourself shedding guilt and shame quickly because of the gospel. That's what we're here to do. We're here to shed guilt and shame because we've been rescued, because he lives in us. Christian, your sins have been taken away. Behold the lamb who takes away your sins. Live in him. Love him. Be transformed by him. And for the not yet Christians among us, listen, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He offers to take away your sin forever, to separate it from you and never count it against you. He will take all that is in Jesus in his obedience and count that toward you. He will if you turn, if you make straight the path of the Lord, if you repent of your sins and you trust in him. If this raises questions for you, not yet Christian, come and talk to us because we want to talk. We want to pray with you. We want to answer questions you have about the Bible. 
John the Baptist was God's messenger. He was odd, he was radical. But he and we are calling you and each other to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll, to open its seal. You are slain. With your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And you have made us a kingdom and a priest to our God. And we know that we shall reign forever with you. Help us, we pray. Lord, to behold Christ more, to understand him more, to, to divert our own selfish tendencies away from ourselves, to, to, to let go of our desire for our will to be done in our lives. Help us to behold Christ and what his will was, to be crushed on our behalf, to rescue us forever. Help us, we pray, to point others to Christ. Help us, we pray, to, to, to pray for those in our lives who have never beheld Christ. Help us, we pray, to speak boldly as John did so that more and more people might behold Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.